Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In this episode, we speak with Jamison Greer, former Chief of Staff for the U.S. Trade Representative, and Cleet Willems, former Deputy Director of the National Economic Council, on rising to the challenge, addressing China's economic threats to the United States. We hope you enjoy. Thank you both for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So maybe I'll start um, with a very basic question, and we'll start with you, Jameson, and, and Cleet, same to you. What should the goal of U.S. economic policy vis-a-vis China really be? Sure. Well, first of all, I think that that policy needs to be couched in our broader economic policy. So in other words, our economic policy should not be entirely geared around how to respond to China. We should decide what kind of economy we, we want to have. Uh, I think we want to make sure that we have a good, robust middle class. Uh, we have working class opportunities, particularly in manufacturing. Uh, we continue to have a technological advantage. So that's the kind of economy we want to have. And so to the extent our economic relationship with China stops that, we need to take policy measures as appropriate to the extent the market's not taking care of that. Uh, and then I would layer on top of that, we also have a strong concern about China's intentions with respect to the Asia-Pacific region and the rest of the world. And so to the extent our economic policies are enabling or allowing the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the People's Liberation Army, uh, to expand a malign or negative influence by China, then we should take measures there too. Yeah, and I, I agree with a lot of what, what Jameson said. I would just add to that um, that I think the goal economically, of course, is to make sure that the United States remains the preeminent economic power in the world, that China isn't able to use a range of unfair practices take advantage of us, to cost us jobs, and to supplant us. And I, I think that really is the overarching goal. I would say, though, I think it's also important to recognize that the impact of China supplanting us, the global economic leader, goes well beyond the economy. It's not something that would only cost us jobs in the United States. It's something that also would allow them to promote their model, uh, their view of the world. They, they don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in free speech, even censorship and control. And to have them promote that model globally is something I think would hurt us well beyond the economic sphere. So a lot of um, policymakers today are really criticizing the last few decades of American economic and political policy, frankly, towards China. So um, how do you see those years leading up to, let's say, the Trump administration, which had a market shift in how we confronted China with economic policy? How do you sort of see us as having gotten China policy, economic policy so long for so long? Well, look, I think it's it's easy now to look back and second guess and say, oh, we should have known, right? But I think you look back to where we made a mistake, and it was probably around 2001 when we made the assumption that China would join the WTO, it would become more market-oriented, it would play by the rules, it would play in the system just the way that we do. And we made that assumption because we saw what happened in China with Deng Xiaoping, the opening up, and we thought that they were on that trajectory. So I don't fault that decision as much to our unwillingness to change very quickly when it became clear that that was a false assumption. Um, and you look at when Xi Jinping came into power in 2012, I think we were slow to react to that, 
we were slow to respond to the fact that they weren't becoming more market oriented, but they were doubling down on command and control. They were doubling down on industrial subsidies and intellectual property theft and the like. So I really think, you know, a lot of people point back to 2001 as the original sin, and I think there's some truth in that. Um, but it was really only after that was proven to be false that we failed to respond where I think the real problem came into place. And I think both of us working together in the Trump administration tried to get us on a different trajectory. Yeah, and I would say um, I certainly agree with that. Um, I would say, though, that I believe that earlier than 2000, there were signs, right? And I would say that uh, it's not the kind of situation where everyone in Washington and everyone on Wall Street kind of collectively made a good faith error, right? I mean, there's certainly an element of that, and I, I agree with that. But at the same time, we had some very compelling vocal voices in the mid-90s following the end of the Cold War saying, hey, I know we've just won the Cold War, but this does not mean that the world is ready to suddenly become market-oriented and democratic. I mean, you had people, you know, people like Ross Perot, who ran for president, got a big chunk of the vote, right, on issues like this. People like Pat Buchanan, um, people like Bob Lighthizer, and not just on the right, people like Nancy Pelosi, right? I mean, very serious folks, uh, major union leaders. So this was actually pretty controversial, even in the 90s and in the lead up um, to uh, the grant of permanent normal trade relations with China. Lately in the news, um, there has been sort of this turn almost. It felt like for for the last couple of years, we were talking about how China was on this inevitable rise to overtake the United States as the largest economy in the world. And then um, beginning in you know early August, we started to see a bunch of articles saying, well, maybe we overestimated. And actually, there are a bunch of weaknesses in, in the Chinese economy. Um, they have too much, uh, too many people sort of in the elderly population. Um, they don't have enough food to support those folks. They don't have a social security program that can support it. What do you both make of those arguments? Yeah, I think that the Chinese economy, like many economies, is cyclical, right? So, I mean, if, if you go back to, I mean, even in the end of 2018, after we put the tariffs on, you know, there was, you know, the Chinese economy started to go down a little bit. And you had people starting to say, oh, they're not nearly as strong as we thought. You go back to 2014, they say that. You go back to the financial crisis and they look like they were really big. So, so there is an there is an aspect of, there's a cyclical nature to some of this. That being said, some of the things you talked about, I mean, these have been issues for years, right? That they have underconsumption uh, from households. They have overinvestment in infrastructure and, you know, empty, you know, empty apartment buildings and bridges to nowhere and that kind of thing. So a lot of these things aren't new. Um, so while we certainly need to, you know, keep tabs on this, I don't think that a recognition that the Chinese economy is having a hard time right now and might continue to have a hard time really should change our policy in a in a meaningful way to the extent we're concerned about maintaining our industrial base, defending it, and ensuring that China doesn't export its 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 model. I agree with a lot of that. And I would just say as a general matter, um, you have to be careful to estimate China appropriately. You know, and, and you know, I don't think China is ten foot tall. I don't think they're unbeatable. I don't think they were even when the economy was better than it is today. Um, they're an, they're a worthy adversary, you know. Maybe they're seven foot two. You know, there's someone we got to take seriously. Um, but I, I think we we need to be careful not to either over or underestimate China. And and I agree with Jamison. They're they're in a bad spot right now. I'm not sure that it's simply a cyclical issue. I actually think the one advantage the United States has is that Xi Jinping, even though he has these massive ambitions uh, to try to restore China's place as the middle kingdom in the center of the earth, um, he's in many ways his own worst enemy. And a lot of the things that China is doing 
um, is actually cracking down on their private sector and really, um, and then cracking down also on American companies operating in China. And and what I have experienced in talking to a lot of businesses is they just don't see the reward in doing business in China in the way that they used to five or 10 years ago. Um, so I think there's a combination of things going on. I think the U.S. policy uh, has something to do with sort of changing companies' minds and hurting China's economy. I think China's own policy hurts itself. And then people also see what happened with the zero COVID policy. They see the saber rattling on Taiwan. And at one point in time, the reward was really high and the risks seemed low. And I think we've gone past that tipping point um, where China is not nearly as desirable as it was before. Now, to Jameson's point where I think we agree is that doesn't mean we take our foot off the gas. Um, they, you know, even though they are vulnerable, they are still, I think, the biggest uh, threat to the U.S. prosperity and to the U.S., um, you know, both economic and uh, model of governance being the preeminent model in the world. So we need to take them seriously, but I think we need to estimate them correctly and realize they have some inherent weaknesses as well. Let me just make one, one point, um, right? I appreciate all of that. We don't have a lot of transparency into the economic situation in China. Like we can kind of sense these general trends, but they have clamped down on their economic data. So we don't have a lot of that information. And even before this, a lot of it wasn't trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So again, we're not going to be able to have a perfect estimate. I agree with Cleet, we want to be careful, but I would rather overestimate China than underestimate them given the stakes. I want to ask about some specific issues and tools that we have. But before I do, um, you know, I asked the goal of U.S. economic policy. What do you suppose the goal of China's economic policy is? Well, I think it's clear uh, that China does want to be the global leader, um, especially in some innovative industries. And, you know, they made that clear as early as 2012, with China 2025, which I'm. Um, and look, on some level, you don't begrudge them that, right? I mean, is going to be a policymaker for their country says, I don't want my country to be number one. Like that is what, that's why you go into government. That's what government's supposed to do. So we can understand that. The problem is twofold. It's number one, the tools that they use to get there and the fact that they're willing to do things that are totally out of step with international norms. They don't respect um, the economic rights of other countries, engage in a whole range of unfair practices. But number two, what would they do with that power? And they have shown on an economic standpoint that they're willing to try to drive everyone else out of business. And then from a geopolitical standpoint, they've shown that they want to promote this model of authoritarianism uh, to the rest of the world. And you see them right now, I mean, just in recent weeks, trying to create the BRICS and build out the BRICS as a counterweight to the G7. And so, again, I, I think the goal of economic prosperity for their own people, that's good, right? We understand that. We want Chinese people to get out of poverty. The problem is if you use unfair tools to get there and then you use it to promote a world order um, that doesn't respect individual rights. I would I would put it even more simply, and, and you may or may not agree with me. I think the goal of Chinese economic policy is to perpetuate the power of the Chinese Communist Party. That's, that's what I think the, the goal is. Um, and because of that, you see all these very kind of bureaucratic sounding policies. They're actually very harmful, right? The dual circulation strategy. Uh, which is the idea that, well, we're going to have an independent domestic market where we dominate this and then we'll have a controlled external market where we only get what we want from who we want, which we want. Um, you have you know, the made in China policy. You have the indigenous innovation, uh, which sounds really great, but essentially it means we're going to have all the technology here. We're going to make it ourselves and we're going to take it by hook or by crook if we need it. Um, so it's, you know, all of those policies are designed ultimately to keep the communist, Chinese Communist Party in power 
And obviously you need to help with the prosperity of the people to maintain that legitimacy in their eyes. Um, but that's just, to me, that's just a stopping point to keeping the yeah. CC. And it's, and it's also brings in a really good distinction that I think, um, I think Mike Gallagher and the China committee had gone to great lengths to make just to distinguish party in the and, and, and so yeah. it's very easy for all of us to just say China. And, and that really doesn't do justice to the many individuals over there who just want to make a living for themselves and their family and who are struggling under the Communist Party. Um, and so I think we, we need to continue to draw that distinction. I agree with you yeah. at what the party's objective is, um, but, you know, it gets mixed up with what the, the, the objectives are of individuals. Um, one of the things that, that you both sort of agreed on is that uh, at least to a probably the the core of U.S. economic policy is to to serve you know American interests to serve the workers and 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 so on. Um, one of the concerns that people have shared is that we are now so dependent on China um, economically um, that this idea of decoupling or, or de-risking and we'll talk about the difference between those two and if there is a difference between those two would really kind of frankly just blow up our economy and people are already suffering here in the United States with with inflation and so on. So um, what strategies can U.S. policymakers sort of push that would strike a better balance between making sure that we're not blowing up our economy and harming people who are already suffering here at home, but are able to sort of separate ourselves um, from from the Chinese economy? Sure. Um, you know, I think that it's important to understand that, that nothing here is free, right? There's not like a no cost option. Um, you know, if we want to just stay the status quo or back to go back to status quo ante with China, what's the cost there? You know, continued dependence on China, continued loss of manufacturing advanced technology to China as they go up the manufacturing curve. Um, but the cost on the other side of uh, whatever you want to call it, decoupling, de-risking, you know, regaining our independence from China, there's a cost there too, right? You may have increased costs as we try to resource from other places. You may have some inefficiencies enter into the market. Um, those are really costs that should be acknowledged. You know, I think that we should have very strong policies that lead us to less dependence on China, right? And this could be a mix of tariffs, industrial policy, restrictions on investment and services, and those kinds of things. But they should be coupled with the kinds of policies that help us at home. Good energy policy, good tax policy, good monetary policy, that kind of thing um, to help us weather any storms that may come. I'll also say that you can phase in some of these things, right? I mean, when you look at when the 301 tariffs went into place, uh, there was not a spike in inflation. Unemployment was at its lowest. Um, it, you know, People said, oh, if you do the steel tariffs, market's going to blow up. You do 301, market's going to blow up. Uh, that didn't happen, um, partially because there was an overestimation of the effect of these things on like normal Americans. And also, we had the benefit of the Trump administration and having a Congress that uh, enacted, you know, better tax policies, better energy policies. Yeah, a couple things. I think we both fundamentally agree some level of strategic decoupling, de-risking, whatever you want to call it, is both necessary and inevitable um, that we have become too reliant on China for goods. Um, and also that there are times when we have been providing China um, sometimes inadvertently, technologies that help its military capabilities. And so there is a need to de-risk to some degree. Now, I would say in order to make sure we do this effectively, uh, a couple principles that I would just throw on, on the table. Um, the first one is that, you know, it, this doesn't all have to be robust government action. 
I think one thing that a lot of policymakers have been trying to do in recent um, years is really just um, highlighting the risks of doing China and, and and making sure people go in that with eyes wide open. I think, as I was mentioning before, some of Xi Jinping in many ways is his own worst enemy. People are more educated about the cost of doing business and the risk of doing business in China. Um, I think some of this may ha happen naturally. Secondly, I think we need to be very strategic about the tools that we use, how we use those tools. Get into this in great lengths. But I would say, look, if we're going to use export controls, let's target those at true national security threats. Um, and let's do them with partners and allies to the extent to that we're losing sales, they are too, and that the measures are effective. We aren't creating an unlevel playing field for our businesses. I'd say on tariffs, let's use tariffs where appropriate. Let's make sure that they're strategic in nature and they focus on products that we can get from elsewhere um, and, and, and things like that. Another thing I would mention here is, is really the importance of having an offensive strategy. We're telling companies, um, you can't do business in China in certain areas. We need to help open up other markets for them. We need to help them develop other supply chain partners. I think we need to look at a robust set of tools to do that. And then finally, I'd say, um, this isn't across the board. We're not going to do business with China on anything. I think it'd be great if we sold more soybeans to China. It would be bad if we sold advanced semiconductor tools to China. And so I think we can allow our economy to thrive in certain ways um, while cutting it off where um, where it's needed. And, and sorry, last point, but Jameson raised it, and I, I just want to double down on it, which is there's so many things we can do at home to unleash American prosperity, having competitive tax and regulatory policy at the top of the list. And if we do all these things together, we can tackle the China problem without do, do you guys see currently any of the presidential candidates, either current President Biden or or the Republican candidates, sort of looking at it that way, uh, seeing that it's not just about our trade policy, but it's also about our policies here at home? I mean, I think we've heard, um, you know, obviously we're hearing a lot more on the Republican side because we have an incumbent on the Democratic side. But I think we're hearing, uh, you know, from most of the Republican candidates that they want to have, you know, you know, a, better regulation and they want to unleash American energy. I mean, to some degree, those are kind of standard Republican talking points that we'd expect to see. Um, I haven't seen them as much saying it like in tandem with their like China commentary. Maybe they'll get there. Maybe they'll watch this and then they'll be like, oh, I should be saying it together. Um, but I mean, I, I think there's a general understanding, at least on that side. And and listen, it's not just that. I mean, you have you have people on the Democratic side you know, who aren't running for president, people like Joe Manchin and and uh, Chris Coons and other folks who who also see the value in making sure that we can be competitive here. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would just put it simply that, you know, number one, I think what's clear from watching presidential candidates is they all understand the and in this tough line on China. Um, I think quite a few of them um, have articulated the importance of working with allies to achieve that goal, having this census against China. I think that's a really positive sign. I, and I agree that also a lot of Republican candidates in particular have talked about the competitive tax and policy and energy exports that. Um, but I agree it hasn't really gotten nitty gritty on China policy and maybe we'll get there. Uh, maybe we won't. But uh, I, I do think that the building blocks are there for the right kind of strategy if put together in the right kind of way. So I want to ask um, some of these sort of specifics about things that the Biden administration has done, um, uh, sort of policies that we can be adopting. But before I do, de-risking versus decoupling. So for the longest time, I was hearing strategic decoupling. Then all of a sudden, I heard, no, 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 it's all about de-risking. Is there really a substantive difference between these two things? Like, what are we talking about here? I, I mean, 
I think there is, but you know, the, the problem is these terms are what people want them to mean. Right. I will say, maybe you disagree with me. I think that the term decoupling means something stronger than the term de-risking. You know, the Europeans are the ones who invented this term de-risking. And then we had folks on our side, go, oh yeah, that's a good term. Why? Because it kind of seems to depoliticize things, take the temperature down a little bit. But to me, it also implies less robust uh, measures, whereas decoupling suggests we're going to have a break, right? We're going to break in, in certain areas or, you know, or, or broader. So I do think there is some difference. But listen, within within decoupling, I mean, you know, Cleek can say, I believe in strategic decoupling, and I can say it too. We probably mean something a little bit different. Yeah, we probably draw the lines in different places, and then we use different tools to get there. But I agree with Jameson. I mean, it's sort of you know, one, what's the phrase? One half a dozen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six to one hundred. Yeah, whatever. I mean, I, I don't think it's a huge difference. I do understand that it was basically something the Europeans were saying so that the Biden administration stole it to try to get the Europeans to do more of what they wanted to do mm-hmm. in China. And so like, but but we're still divergent. Oh, we're still divergent. Right. So. But, the, but the bottom line is this, like we all agree there needs to be less reliance on China in strategic areas and that we need to stop selling them things that fuel their military. I think everyone agrees on that. And then, like Jameson said, maybe we draw the lines in slightly different ways. The concept's the same. Um, One major issue that people have been speaking about when it comes to economic competition with China is, of course, outbound investment. And so um, in August of 2023, the Biden administration issued an executive order which directed the Secretary of the Treasury to create a program that basically um, required uh, notification of certain types of outbound investments um, into semiconductors, I think microelectronics, um, quantum information technologies, things like that. Um, so and, and they specifically mentioned uh, investments in those entities that are under the jurisdiction of, of China. So what do you think about this proposal? Supportive, not supportive? I, I think it was a good first step. And, and really, if you take a step back and think about what they were trying to do, um, you have a whole series of export controls in place. Those export controls basically say we cannot send goods or IP to China um, in areas that we believe it is going to contribute to their indigenous innovation, technologies that can contribute to their military and at the same time, what this EO tries to do is to say, if we're going to cut off exports and IP, maybe we should also look at cutting off financing for those exact same technologies. Mm-hmm. Because you have a hole in your economic toolkit if you're able to fund the indigenous innovation of the very same technologies that you couldn't share with them in the first place. And so to the extent that they're trying to, to fill that hole in the toolkit, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, a lot of people say, oh, notification, that doesn't mean anything. The truth is that in many respects, it becomes a chilling effect um, on that kind of investment. And we're starting to see that in the numbers. Investment from the U.S. into China continues to go down. Um, and I think some of that is that that chilling effect. Um, but I did say I think it's a good first step. I think we do need to get it into effect, see how it works in practice. We need to think about are there other sectors we want to look at. And then I would complement it with enhancements to some of our other investment restrictions. And if you, as you described the EO, it's really a sectoral approach and saying there are certain sectors and certain technologies that we need to be concerned about. I would also look at individual Chinese entities. And right now we have something called the Chinese military industrial companies list. You can't invest in the public securities of those companies. My view is if you can't invest in a public security, why could I give that company company private financing? And, and we really need to plug that hole too. So a lot of different things we can do. I think it's a good first step. 
Um, and, and, and I hope that we'll see, as we were talking about the Europeans and others, see them come along with us. Yeah, that's a, you know, Cleet's take is, is positive, and I agree with the things he said, but I, you know, my view is that EO is inadequate and, and late. Um, and, you know, Cleet mentioned, you know, at the end, let's, you know, make sure to get it into force. I mean, it's not in force yet, right? I mean, the EO is out there, but it's not in force yet. I think it's inadequate in terms of the sectors covered. Um, and listen, it's not just the administration that's to blame for this. I mean, it's Congress. They've had something like this kind of in the works for a long time, and you've had members of Congress, you know, kill it, right? Or say, oh, well, we should just do notification. And it's not really a party thing, right? I mean, you have you have some folks who on, on the right who have been very strong say we need to broadly understand and curtail, uh, you know, in U.S. investment into China in a number of areas. And then you'll have other Republicans that say, no, we're not going to do that. Right? And the same thing on the left. Um, so I think it needs to be broader. I think it needs to cover things like biopharma. I think it needs to cover um, a lot more advanced manufacturing. Um, I just I think it needs to, uh, you know, be broader to reflect the seriousness with which the Chinese are approaching their investment in these areas where the United States and its allies should really dominate global markets. One of the uh, Republican presidential candidates, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, um, mentioned that the United States is currently dependent on China to make the things we make, essentially. You know, that the supply chain for um, so many of our products, including our defense industry equipment, um, relies on Chinese uh, controlled supply chains. Um, we know that they're in charge of over 80 percent of the critical mineral supply chain, Um we saw with COVID-19 that they're in charge of a lot of the sort of pharmaceutical and, and uh, medical equipment supply chains. What do you think is the best way to reduce reliance on China for these key supply chains? Let me just give a couple of thoughts on those specific things you talked about. Um, you know, let's talk about rare earths. Let's talk about lithium, for example, right? Everyone wants lithium to put in their batteries. And, you know, everybody knows that, you know, 90% or something like 80% of lithium in the, United, in the world is processed in China. Uh, because China's particularly good at processing. Part of it is our regulation, our, our regulatory system here in the United States makes it very difficult to open a lithium mine and process it. Okay. So, I mean, that's part of environmental protections and things. For example. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, yeah. Right. So it's, so it's like, it's great that we have all this like industrial policy to say, hey, we're going to do these grants if you, you know, open up a facility. But when EPA or DOI or whoever, BLM, whoever it is has the land or, or is in charge, isn't going to give you a permit for years and you have to litigate to get it. I mean, that that's crazy, right? And take, for example, biopharma. I mean, we used to have a very good tax um, situation in the United States and, and like in Puerto Rico as well that really incentivized those companies to stay here, right? And then we saw a different tax regime come up in Europe. So you have a lot of these companies that have domiciled in, in Ireland and now they're getting a lot of their inputs from China and India. I mean, this is not popular. Will it be popular maybe with the pharma folks? But we need to chip that kind of, in my view, we need to chip that kind of thing for pharma. And maybe it's a mix of, of tax incentives and, and something like that. But we need to reshore those supply chains. Yeah, so I agree. I mean, this is a major problem for the United States in a whole range of sectors. Clearest examples of that. And look, it's impossible to open a mine to mine critical minerals in the United States. Of course, you're going to be reliant on others as long as that maintains your policy. This goes back to what talking about throughout this conversation, which is the U.S. needs to get its own house in order, have a more uh, viable, more competitive regulatory policy if it wants. I would also add in there that as we're looking to diversify away from China, in addition to making it easier to do stuff in the United States, we do need to work with our partners and allies. 
And I do think that having targeted sectoral trade agreements in some of these areas is a way to do that. There are other countries around the world, whether it's Australia um, or other partners in the pharmaceutical space, you know, Japan, the EU, Korea, others, um, where if we have a targeted trade policy where we reduce the barriers between us, it'll make it easier for us to link supply chains. And so I do think um, that one thing this administration has not done enough, they've talked a good game about these issues, they've talked about the problem, if you actually look at the deals they're negotiating, like the critical minerals deal that they negotiated, it's a bunch of oratory language. It doesn't really change anyone's supply chain decision making. And I think that needs to be part of the equation. And I should say, too, if we are able to kind of develop these industries, which we, a lot of it we just don't have right now, then there's a role for tariff protection. I, have, I just have to make that. Right. And we have laws on the books that can. But, that look, can. but I want to let's, let's, let's fix it on this for a second, right? And, and I mean, I, I would probably agree that there's a role for tariffs vis-a-vis China. Um, the point I'm making is that we should look at reducing tariffs and barriers with our allies and partners. We can't do every supply chain wholly in the United States. It's just not realistic economically. And we talk about friendshoring. Let's really see it in action. So let's work with our friends and allies to reduce tariffs and reduce barriers. And then if we need to put a big old barrier on China, let's do that too. Well, the barrier should go on, on anyone who has unfair trade practices, right? Whether it's China or somebody else. So this is a great segue to talk more specifically about tariffs. Um, and in particular, um, in May of 2022, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative implemented a uh, an ongoing four-year review of tariffs um, to evaluate effectiveness, determine whether um, they should stay, go, be added to um, what do you think about specifically about a four-year review period? Um, and then more generally, I'd love for you guys both to dive into your sort of specific views on on tariff policy, because I know they they differ uh, quite significantly. So maybe we'll start, Jameson. Sure. Um, so the four-year review, I mean, this is statutory, right? So the tariffs were put into place under Section 301, and after they've been in place for four years, USTR has to review them. And, you know, they can modify them, make changes, assess their effectiveness and that kind of thing. So USTR is in the midst of this. They've taken comment from anyone who's interested, right? And you have folks, opponents, proponents, all kinds of folks have done this. Uh, you have the International Trade Commission who kind of on their own has, um, you know, developed their own report on these kinds of things. Uh, have the tariffs been effective? I mean, the answer is yes. So if you look at the share of imports, China's share of imports in the United States, it was about... 21% in 2016, and it's now at about 15 or 16%. Okay. Um, if you look at the goods that are actually tariffed, right, that are on the tariff lists, those imports from China have gone down substantially. But we haven't cut off all trade with China. We're still trading quite a bit with China, trading a lot, but mostly just in less, less sensitive things. Uh, people have been able to modify their supply chains. Um, one example I'll give that's really important is electric vehicles. You know, if you read the industry reports, you'll see that China has increased its exports of electric vehicles by 47% in the last year, year on year. And it's really hit the Europeans really hard, but not us. Why? Because we have a 25% Section 301 tariff on electric vehicles from China. So, so I mean, these are just examples. Um, this review, hopefully, will look at some of the tariffs and adjust them if they need to, right? Um, there are going to be situations where there's a tariff inversion, maybe, where you know, we put a tariff on a, on an intermediate good, but not a finished good. And so the incentives are kind of messed up. So there may be opportunities like that to to tweak the tariffs. But as for like removing them in any kind of 
whole way. I mean, to me, that doesn't make any sense economically. It doesn't make any sense, you know, politically vis-a-vis the Chinese. Um, if anything, we should probably find somewhere we should increase them. Yeah, look, I, I would say that the tariffs, um, in some respect, have been a mixed bag. Uh, I think there are some tariffs that have been incredibly effective. There are some tariffs that have been less effective. And I, I think that we need to look at it holistically and strategically and design tariffs. And I, I don't know what's taken the administration so long to get to this. Um, this is something I think they should have been working on from day one when they made the decision that they weren't going to use these tariffs. Because remember, that was the original intent, right? We used these to get the phase one deal. Um, and, and, and now that this administration has decided that they're not going to talk about that and the problems with that. Now that they've sort of walked away from that, then the question is, what's the optimal tariff structure for the United States? And so I, I would agree with Jameson. I think there's probably some tariffs we should raise and there's probably some we should get rid of. If you look at the ITC report, which is really the, I think, the definitive study to date on this, there's some tariffs that clearly are working. And I, I would use semiconductors as an example, where you saw exports from China to the United States going down. I think it was around 70%. They went down and prices in the U.S. only went up by about 1%. There are other examples in that report, a range of examples, consumer goods in particular, um, that we can't get from elsewhere from China, where basically the price went up 25% and the level of imports didn't change at all. Those are bad tariffs. We should get rid of those. Um, I also have, have, have worked with a range of companies who have actually been trying to do more manufacturing in the United States, but they're not doing it because of the tariffs. This is what Jameson referred to as the tariff inversions. PCs, for example, you can get a PC from China on a 0% tariff, but if you want the components to make the PC, it's 25%. Why the heck would I put an assembly plant in the United States when it's going to cost me 25% to get the input? Um, so we need to clean it up. And I think there's areas where we should raise the tariffs where they're working, and then where they're not, we should get rid of them. Um, and I hope that the administration has the political courage to take this on because the status quo is not working for anyone. I think the status quo is working for a lot of people, like the car companies who don't want to have, you know, uh, imports of electric vehicles from China. Uh, it's working for a lot of other manufacturers. So, I mean, I think it, it really depends on the situation. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's also important to understand that beyond whether it's a 25% tariff or a 7.5% tariff or something like that, there is an enormous value having in China understanding and companies understanding that China no longer has really free market access to the United States. I mean, that has its own value, independent of what the percentage is and what the specific item is. Cleet, you mentioned um, the the phase one trade deal. Um, so uh, this agreement essentially required structural reforms and other changes to um, to China's economic and trade regime. President Trump um, lauded it as, as righting the wrongs of the past. You mentioned how the Biden administration is sort of walking away from it. So. Um, why are they doing that? And what did you think about the phase one deal in the first place? Look, I mean, the phase one deal uh, was a significant challenge and I think a significant accomplishment. We were both involved with that and it wasn't easy to get those commitments out of China. Um, and and I think it was, you know, on IP, on agricultural market access issues, some really good stuff in there um, uh, that some of which China has implemented. Now, my biggest issue is lack of transparency from this administration about phase one. Um, we don't know how China is doing across a whole range of sectors because the administration hasn't reported public, they haven't reported Congress, and we don't know anything to try to enforce. Uh, it doesn't seem like that activity is going on. And I think it was a mistake for the United States 
to make a huge deal of this to really push China to make these changes and then not actually follow. Um, and so that that has been a source of frustration. Quite frankly, it matters to individual companies. We are talking before about strategic decoupling or de-risking. Pursuant to the deal, there were things we decided we wanted to continue to do business in China, uh, and our companies are not getting that opportunity because of the lack of enforcement. Yeah, we, we essentially, in phase one, the thing that was remarkable about it is that we established standalone kind of bilateral trading framework with China. Outside the WTO, which had been ineffective in getting China to do the right thing. Um, and in that first year, we saw, you know, agricultural exports to China just skyrocket. Um, and part of that was because, as Cleet mentioned, uh, China agreed to make a lot of regulatory changes with respect to, you know, agricultural market access, which they did. Um, you know, now I am familiar with, you know, companies and U.S. ag exporters who are seeing China start to renege on these things. Um, and I can tell you if this administration or any administration had made an effort to actually enforce this deal, we'd probably be in a different spot on those things. And I think this is really bizarre, in fact, because we just saw the Secretary of Commerce come back from China. And the big announcement is we have working groups to talk about trade and investment issues, and they can you know, meet repeatedly and escalate. And it's like that. we already had that in the phase one deal, except we also had tariffs and the ability to enforce it. So now they have the talking groups, but not the enforcement aspect. So it's kind of bonkers. No, I mean, I actually think this is a theme that, and something I've been frustrated with this administration is a lack of understanding of how business works and how important uh, opening up foreign markets is for business. Um, if we want to remain the world's innovation leader, to tap into the opportunities that are there. And the China phase one was a perfect example of that. Jameson mentioned agriculture. I also look at energy, um, which is something we've really not been able penetrate the Chinese market. Um, and I, I don't understand why they haven't prioritized trying to get follow through. Well, and this goes back to a question you asked earlier about if we're going to take robust measures, whether it's tariffs or restrictions or something else on China, how do we make sure that our economy you know, has other options? I mean, when, when we were doing this with China uh, in the last administration, we were also making a deal with Japan to open up their ag market in a remarkable way, where essentially we got all of the ag access and was promised with GPP. We also, we also not quite all of it. Well, maybe not the rice, but everything else. Um, and then we also had the, um, you know, the NAFTA 2.0 USMCA, right, um, where where we improved and kind of stabilized that agreement. Um, so there were things that were going on at the same time to to create opportunities for American exporters. One of the things that I love about having you guys on this, on these kinds of programs, is it really shows the diversity of of thought among even the people who identify as conservative, um, but have very different views on these sorts of things. Um, one thing that I have noticed um, rhetorically, at least, um, from some of the Republican candidates, and Nikki Haley is an example of this, um, is specifically mentioning revoking permanent normal trade relations with China. Um, so first, what does permanent normal trade relations mean for our trade with China? How does it fit into our strategy, and do you agree with revoking it? Well, so PNTR is something that we granted to China when it joined the WTO. And basically what it means is that we give them, as a baseline, same tariff treatment for all other WTO members, MFN, most relations status. Uh, before China joined the WTO and we granted PNTR on an annual basis, and the president would have to certify that that treatment was. So what would happen if you revoked PNTR is you would end up in this annual certification process, which given the political climate on China, you know, no one's going to certify 
that China is meeting all of its WTO obligations. So you're basically going to end up with a much higher tariff regime called Column 2 in our tariff schedule. Basically, Smoot Holly. Well, I'll get to Column 3 in a second. Um, it's called Smoot Holly, and, and, and really it was um, massive tariff spikes in a lot of different areas. So I get the, the, the instinct, right? Because let, let, let's take a step back and look at this politically. When China joined the WTO, we granted them this status uh, because we assumed they would they would follow through on these commitments. They haven't followed through on these commitments. Therefore, we should revoke the status. I mean, you, you can understand that thinking. The problem with that is, as I mentioned, if you go to these column two tariffs, they are totally non-strategic. Give you one example, many. Um, go from column uh, from MFN to column two. You're basically taking the tariff on toys and raising it by 80%. You aren't doing anything with the tariff on semiconductors. And, and you can go through the whole code, and there's a lot of examples of that. So it's totally non-strategic. And so where I would come down, and you may agree, you may disagree, is this a concept of this column three. I don't think we should go back and treat China. We should get rid of 301 and treat them like everyone else. Um, I think they need to be treated differently, different kind of threat. But I would look at redesigning the tariffs um, in a in a very strategic way. Um, and so you could do it through PNTR, or you could just do it through re redesigning one, as we were talking about earlier. So do you think PNTR is okay as long as we rejigger those tariffs? I think we should rejigger the 301 tariffs. I'm talking about the column two. Or column two. I'm not sure I understand the question. I mean, I think I don't think China should be given the same treatment as the rest of the world, but I think revoking PNTR is not the right way to do it because it would lead to tariff spikes in areas that would harm U.S. consumers needlessly. So 100%, we should revoke uh, most favored nation status for China. Okay. And they call it PNTR because nobody would be willing to vote for something that was called most favored nation for China, right? For the Chinese communist regime. So so for sure we should revoke it. Cleet's point is correct, I think, that we need to you know, be pragmatic in how we do this. Um, we should revoke it and potentially uh, either Congress itself decides what that column tariffs are gonna look like because the ones that were developed in the 30s maybe are not relevant to you know, 100 years later, right? Um, so, that, so that makes sense to me. Uh, you could also do something like phase it in, right? Instead of having some kind of overnight thing, you could say, well, you know, we're going to, Congress could say here that we're going to revoke PNTR. We're going to go to a new column for China. Here's where the tariffs are going to be. They're high, and but we're going to phase it in over a few years so we can give business the opportunity to, you know, get their supply chains in order uh, and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I think that's, you know, they did this for Russia, right? I mean, they did this for Russia. Congress revoked it, and they actually gave the president authority uh, to increase tariffs, which which is another option to give the president some kind of authority. But I mean, to and keep in mind too, China effectively does not have PATR anymore, right? I mean, we've covered this huge yeah, percentage yeah. of it. So I mean, we're half eye there already. Right, but that's so. that's really my fundamental point. Is I think it's almost I don't want to say a total red herring, but it, it's almost beyond the point. I think everyone agrees China should not be treated the same as the rest of the world because they're a bad actor. And then the question just becomes, what is the mechanism you use and what are the tariff rates that you decide to employ? And my point is going the PNTR route is ineffective and, or not ineffective, sorry, not strategic and it would have unintended consequences. So what I would rather do is create a 301 regime using a tool we already have that deals with this in a strategic way. Yeah, I think you just revoke PNTR, send the message to the business community, send the message to China, Put in place tariffs that make sense for our economy and our industry. So let me ask you then, since you asked me, yeah. when you revoke PNTR, yep. would you reduce any of the tariff rates? I mean, if it made sense to. 
Okay. Right. Okay. I mean, we'd have we'd have to look at it. So you don't want eighty percent on your kids' stuff. Well, I don't. I don't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> so as we talk about um, our trade uh, and and investment approaches with China, obviously, what comes to mind is we don't exist in a vacuum. It's not just us and China. There's a whole rest of the world here. Um, Clean, you'd mentioned our European partners on a few occasions in this conversation. Um, so we can really only accomplish full sort of true de-risking from China, I think, if our partners and allies are also doing something to um, to counter China's economic rise. So where do the U.S. and our, our partners sort of align and where do we differ on trade and investment approaches with China? Um, and do we need to be working more with them to encourage them to adopt some similar measures as we have? Yeah, I think the, the perfect example on this is export controls. And, and I will be both critical and complimentary of the administration at the same time, um, which is if you're going to take major export control measures uh, that cut off that market for our semiconductor companies, it may be the right thing to do. And I think that it is, you know, to, you know where it's the critical technology that contributes to their military. You can't just do it unilaterally because what happens is China can get almost the exact same technology, substitutable technology from the Europeans, from the Japanese, from the Koreans in some case from the ta Taiwanese. And so in order for this to be effective, you have to do it in unison with your partners. And, and my concern with the administration here was that we have had uh, a measure in place for almost a year now, since last October 7th, and you now are finally getting the, uh, the Dutch and the Japanese to do something, which is good. They've never done it before. What they're doing is only really a partial fix. They don't go as far as the United States. And so our companies are still not going to be on a level playing field. So, uh, and, and we're not denying China the technology that they need. There's been a lot of news articles recently about how Huawei and other companies in China are still getting technology from third countries. And they're trying to stockpile because they're lagging us on their measures. So kudos to the administration for recognizing that they need these trade measures. But I think they get a little bit of a demerit for how tardy it was and how non thorough it was. And, and so I think as we're moving forward, um, Export controls are the key area, and I think some of our partners are coming along, but not as fast as they need to be. Yeah. Um, so I, as a general matter, I, I agree with all that. Obviously, we want things like export controls to be effective. We want to be effective across the board. Um, making policy is hard in America. Getting someone else to make policy in the EU is really hard. Um, so I, too, credit the, this administration for making that effort. Um, I guess what... It, at the same time, though, we can't let our allies, I'm talking this fecklessness, uh, be a veto for our action, right? And I think we often see this in export controls, where the U.S. takes the first step, is very strong, then we kind of pull along our, our allies, the you know, so-called allies, grudgingly. I say so-called because, I mean, if we don't want China to have, you know, cutting-edge semiconductor equipment, you'd think that, you know, these governments would be the first in line to agree and and support their own um, their own interests or what we think are their interests. Um, but again, they have their own agency on these matters, and and maybe it means we need to have a harder line with some of these other folks, right? Well, not not even just on the national security front. I mean, I, I know recently there was an uh, inquiry into how the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act was sort of being implemented, and um, apparently sort of quite well here in the United States, but still China was making even more money because other European nations were obviously still um, still importing and actually increasing their amount of imports. Um, 
Another sort of side of of this, we're talking a little bit about uh, about multilateralism, but what is the role of bilateral free trade agreements um, when it comes to our economic competition with China? I mean, I I think um, I think they can be helpful, right? I mean, I think one thing we've you know articulated today is that when we talk about economic competition with China, it means a lot of things, right? It means domestic regulation, it means defensive and offensive trade measures, and that kind of thing. So again. You know, bilateral FTAs, that, that's one piece. Um, you know, I, I always thought, and I know others have thought, that an FTA with, like, the Philippines would be something that could be worth looking into. Um, it's more of a complementary economy as opposed to a competitive economy. Um, you know, from a perspective of consumer choice, the, you know, they have a population demographic there that may be more willing to buy American products than other countries. Um, you know, their industrial base is, is not of a size and magnitude that it maybe would threaten, you know, our industrial base, which is always a big concern with these FTAs. So I think there are certainly opportunities. At the same time, I don't think they're like a panacea. You know, I don't, you know, I mean, we've had a lot of FTAs and some of them have been helpful and successful, particularly those in like the Americas. Um, you know, we have others in other places where we've ended up with these huge trade deficits that represent, you know, foregone manufacturing in the United States in favor of manufacturing overseas. So I think we just have to be very careful, very pragmatic, uh, I think sectoral in certain situations and maybe just rule out certain sectors and keep some in as opposed to having like these comprehensive agreements that we've had in the past. Yeah, I would say I, I think deal uh, trade agreements are critical part ch- strategy vis-a-vis China. They are critical to helping companies diversify supply chains away from China. And um, you have an issue right now where China is going cutting trade deals left and right, especially in the Indo-Pacific very robust trade agreement agenda. We haven't done a trade agreement since the full-fledged FTA that cuts uh, tariffs, that cuts barriers and cuts things. So it gives China a major advantage on supply chain linkages and it impedes our ability to diversify our supply chains away from China. And um, so I think that is really a misinformed strategy. Um, I think the Philippines would be a great candidate. I would go much further than that and I would look throughout the Indo-Pacific I think we should do an FTA with Taiwan. I think it's critical to help Taiwan diversify its supply chains away from China. And I think on TPP, look, we're not going to get into TPP as negotiated initially. We negotiated USMCA. We made a lot of enhancements in the U.S. trade model. And I think we should apply those lessons to a much broader range of countries in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. And I, I'd look at Latin America as, as well. The last point I do want to make is this, this concept that somehow all these trade agreements are responsible for our trade deficits. I just don't buy that. I don't think the evidence shows it. You look at the trade deficit. I mean, primary trade deficit was with China. Last time I checked, we don't have an FTA with China. We have massive tariffs on China. So I think that correlation is a little less clear uh, than Jameson make it out to be. And if you actually look at when we enter into trade agreements, what usually ends up happening those countries cut their tariffs for our products a lot more than we cut our tariffs for their And so it helps level the playing field for the United States, and that's why we need to be doing more deals. Yeah, I think you've mischaracterized uh, what I said. So with respect to China, for example, we have a trade agreement with China. It's called the WTO. We have a trade agreement with a lot of these countries. It's called the WTO. We already have very low tariffs vis-a-vis these countries. And where we don't have a secondary bilateral trade agreement that further cuts our tariffs, uh, what we have are a lot of countries that have unfair trade practices with respect to labor, with respect to the environment. So when we talk about China, why do we have a giant trade deficit with them? Well, 
first of all, most importantly, we let them into the WTO, which is a giant trade agreement. And you can see the deficit increase from the moment we, we let them in. And the second thing is they have a number of industrial subsidies. They have a number of unfair trade practices with respect to you know, labor and environment and all kinds of things. Um, and so I, I think to say, well, let's just have another WTO round, which is essentially what TPP is, right? It's like have another WTO round with a select group of folks kind of doing more of the same, of the same economic and trade policy that led to where we are now, to me seems to be you know, debunked in a sense. I think we need to look at this. I think we need to look at it on a bilateral basis in the situation where we have more leverage against these trading partners. We need to be pragmatic about it. We need to be realistic about it and understand that they're looking, these other countries are looking for their own economic interests. Um, they may have a different view about China. I mean, someplace like Indonesia or Malaysia, I mean, they have a different view of China than we do, right? Should we trade with them? Of course we should trade with them. Is there an opportunity for complementary trade with them? Probably. Are there opportunities to have mutual trade liberalization with them? Maybe. But I think just going in and saying, well, let's just do more of the same. We had the WTO. It didn't quite work to get where we wanted with China, so let's do more of it. I think I think that needs a lot more scrutiny. Yeah, but... I but to be to be fair here, I'm not talking about redoing the WTO. I mean, I'm, we're, the question was about trade agreements with countries in the region. And my point is we need to do more of them be, simply because the WTO is not working fully to our advantage. Let's use Taiwan as the example, country that would be first on my list for an FTA. Right now, if you want to sell agricultural products into Taiwan, you face a whole range of barriers and you face a 15% tariff. Taiwan wants to sell products to us. It faces a 5% tariff and a lot less restrictions. What FTAs do is they equalize that treatment. They are the way to level the playing field where the WTO is falling short. And I think if you look across the region, you're going to see similar examples. Why do I want to do a trade agreement with Indonesia? Because right now, if I'm in Indonesia and I'm a consumer or I'm a business and I'm looking at whether I'm going to buy something from China or the United States, it's a heck of a lot cheaper to buy it from China because they have an FTA. And so we always think about these FTAs as, oh, we're all cutting our tariffs, but we often forget the benefit of it will make it easier for every country that we do an FTA with to buy stuff with us rather than China. And that should be the objective of our trade policy. Make it easier to buy American goods than Chinese goods. And the answer to getting that is more bilateral FTAs. I want to ask about another type of agreement. So in, in 2022, the U.S. launched the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. I think there's 14 nations that signed on in the Indo-Pacific. So how do frameworks like that fit into this conversation? Well, my understanding on IPEF is that the administration felt like the U.S. had left a void in the Indo-Pacific when it exited the TPP. And it wanted to do something to show that it was committed to the region but it did not feel like the Democratic Party or the Democratic key Democratic constituencies would be open for a true trade agreement. So it really is, I think, kind of a half measure where they're trying to do some things that are good. I don't want to discredit all of it. I mean, trying to have mechanisms to, um, you know, inform people about supply chain disruptions, you know, talking about concepts like economic coercion. Those are good things. Um, but it, but it is a poor substitute for a real FTA because it is not a true alternative to the kinds of deals that China is offering. I mean, China's trying to build the Silk Road 2.0 through the Indo-Pacific, and they're doing it by doing tariff cutting agreements with countries across the region, and we have not provided a sufficient alternative. So I think IPEF is a starting point. It tries to show a commitment to the region, but it really just needs to be a building block to something much, much greater and much more meaningful. Yeah, so IPEF. I mean, I agree with um, Cleet's assessment of like what it is and what it might accomplish. Um, you know, I think I'd, I'd 
again, continue to have, have a different view on... I disagree on the, the answer. <laughs> right. I mean, to, to, to me, to me, I mean, yeah, I said we have a trade agreement with folks in Southeast Asia. We do. It's the WTO. It is a trade agreement. And on top of that, we have the Section 301 tariffs, which is effectively a trade agreement with them. Why do I say that? Because you want to laugh for now or later. I mean, you know what the data are. You know what I'm going to say. So what happens now is all of those supply chains have moved have moved from a lot of them have moved from China to Southeast Asia. And so all of those competitors, they have a 25 percent advantage over China. Trade agreement is a preferential thing. And so right now, if you're shipping from Indonesia, from Vietnam, from Malaysia, from Thailand, you have a 25 percent advantage over your biggest competitor in manufacturing, which is China. I mean, that's a great deal for these folks. I, I, I agree that it is helping them. Um, but I really think we can we can supercharge that by by looking in other ways to link supply chains. And that still isn't solving the problem where those countries are still have an incentive to import from China rather than from the United States. But we're continuing to fuel China's. Well, they should just lower their tariffs because they have such. I agree. Because and, we don't have reciprocal tariffs with them. So for us to go and say we already have low tariffs, yours are still high. We're going to lower ours even more if you could do yours a little bit more too. I mean, we should just go say and demand and say, you need to open your markets. If you're going to benefit from our market in a disproportionate way, you need to open yours, period. No, but it's not a, it's, it's and you threaten. No, we're all going to zero. It's, they don't. The FTAs all go to zero. Oh, but I mean, the no, FTAs all go, right? well, all, everyone has a little quota for their, for their, 90 you know, for their lifestyles or for their ag or their sense. So Jameson, look, all I'm asking is that we do something like USMCA. I mean, I, I I think USMCA was a great model. I think we did a great job in the Trump administration negotiating that. I think we did a great job getting bipartisan support on the Hill. And what I would like to do is take USMCA and expand that across the world. That's what I want to do in the Indo-Pacific. That's what I want to do with Taiwan. Yeah. That's what I want to do in Latin. I don't think we need another, I don't even think we need another WTO, right? I mean, USMCA is a, is a we have a very integrated North American economy with partners onto our North and our South. Um, that's been there for a long time. So to take that model and say, well, we can do this with Indonesia, where we don't have nearly as much influence as we do in Canada, Mexico, where we don't have nearly as much trade with them, and it's going to make them get on our side with China. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I think we need solutions, but I I don't think having some like something that we call broader USMCA, which is really just a WTO without China, which is kind of what it sounds like. I don't think that's the solution. That's something that got us where we are in the first place. So I want to. I want to ask one final question of you both, um, and it's a it's a it's a softball question. So um, are no softball <laughs> questions. <laughs> Clean not. So well, we are pretty good. We are pretty good until the last eight minutes, right? Yeah, you guys were great. You guys were great. Um, so day one of a new administration or day one of a Biden administration's second term. We've spoken a lot about a variety of different economic tools that we can potentially deploy in, in competition with China. If you're on that team or you're advising that administration, what is sort of the number one thing on your list um, that you think is so critical for us to get right in the next few years? I just I'm just all like sitting here. I'm like, falling short. I'm not going to get you. I'll go first. I won't get it. You go first. And then you can tee off. Let me think about it. Bill, I won't give you one thing. I'll answer the question. Um, I'll answer the question I w- uh, the way I wish the question was asked. No, look, we're talking about China. We're talking about trade. What I would really go back to is I think we ha- need to have a comprehensive 
strategic integrated strategy where we are doing the things we talked about at home, right? The offensive strategy where we're looking at having a more competitive American uh, economy through tax reform, regulatory reform, um, and, and, and things like that, right? I think that is clearly part of the equation. Number two is the defense. And we need to build on some of the things we did in the Trump administration, some of the things the Biden administration is doing well, some of the things that are doing better. So we need to keep, stay the course and, and, and even go further on export controls and outbound uh, and issues like that. And then third, for me, would clearly be what I've articulated as this offensive strategy, which is working with allies and partners um, um, to, to have more trade agreements to help us Im improve our supply chain diversification away from China. Um, so I would go offense, defense, and then this sort of offensive trade uh, component to it and working with allies and partners. Yeah, I mean, along the same lines, I would say the first thing that would have to be done is a policy would have to be articulated, right? Because sometimes it feels like we have like four different policies, yeah. right? Depending on the member of cabinet who's speaking that day. Um, so, and and that's not unique to this administration either, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> Other past administrations sometimes had something like that, but um, and I would I would articulate in terms of here is the challenge with China. We bear China no ill will. We want to see China and the Chinese people be successful, but not at the expense of the United States and the free world and what we stand for. And with respect to our allies, we hope and expect that you will be right along with us in developing and implementing these policies, because if you don't, you're going to be living in a world that you don't like. And the best thing for our allies is for the United States to have a robust defense industrial base. That's the best thing for our allies. And so we're going to have trade and economic policies that help that help develop that and prevent China from uh, acting and achieving uh, its, its negative goals, right? And keep it to those positive goals that it has. So I think we end on a note on which we largely agree. Yeah, there you go. I think so. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you both so much for, for joining us. Thank you for all of the events that you've done with us in the past. Um, this was sort of a masterclass in, um, in American economic policy, so really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World. We hope you found today's exploration of competition with China informative and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at VandenbergCoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this is the Vandenberg Coalition's Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World.